Hello and welcome to this Faber podcast special. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is the Dwayne of British crime writers, P.D. James. In this Faber's 80th anniversary year, it seems especially appropriate to be talking to an author whose association with the company goes back over half that time, to 1962 and the publication of her first novel, Cover Her Face. Many more novels under the Faber imprint were to follow, including Devices and Desires, Innocent Blood, and The Children of Men. And in 2000, James looked back at her own life in time to be in earnest. But James's most enduring creation is surely her detective, Adam Dalgleish, introduced in her first novel and still going strong in her most recent, The Private Patient, published last year. Sitting in P.D. James's garden in Holland Park, I began by asking her where Dalgleish had come from. Well, I can recall giving considerable thought to the detective. The first decision was, uh, should I have an amateur or should I have uh, a professional? And of course there are huge advantages in having an amateur because you have great freedom. Have a man or a woman. At that time, of course, I couldn't have a woman because there were no women in the upper echelons of the detective force. Nowadays, almost certainly, I would have started with a woman. It would have been a more natural thing to do. But then there was no choice there. Uh, But of course, if you have an amateur, you can make him any age. You can give him an interesting hobby, make that hobby the same as yours and write about it. You can send him in all parts of the UK instead of tying him to one force. And also, there's often greater reader identification because people feel that with an amateur, they can put themselves into his shoes more easily. And often plotting is simpler because he can do uh, all sorts of foolish things or that would seem rather more natural. He can do things that a professional would never do. And he's not tied by um, judges' rules, force procedures, anything else. But I I was aiming at a certain realism, although perhaps that was in itself not a realistic aspiration. Um, I thought... In real life, amateurs don't keep stumbling over bodies, and if they do, they lack the technical resources or the authority to investigate. And if I want to continue a career as a writer of detective fiction, it's going to be much easier if I you know, just take the plunge and, and, and have a profession. So um, I created Adam Dalgleish. I named him after my English teacher at school without quite taking on board that, of course, she was a Scottish lady. It's a Scottish name, but the answer to that is that the family came down to England many generations earlier. I gave him the uh, qualities which I uh, admire, either in a man or a woman, so that I gave him um, high intelligence, um, compassion but not sentimentality, courage but not foolhardiness, and reticence. And I wanted him to have some kind of artistic interest. And I have a feeling the man would be probably most likely, as he has developed, to be a musician. But I don't know enough about music. so And I do love poetry. And I think I understand the creative imagination, the poetic imagination, because I tried to write it in my time. Um, so I made him a poet. And uh, sort of set him in early middle age, of course, where he stayed more or less all these years. And then I thought, what about his love life? Well, I certainly wanted to have a love life, but I don't think I want to take much interest in it at the moment. So I made him a widower and callously killed off his wife and baby son in childbirth. Um, And there he was, 
very much yes. and you've been with him through through thick and thin ever since now in in your most recent book the private patient at one point he says perhaps i've had enough of murder and i wondered are you reaching the end with with dalglish or do you think we'll we'll see him again i i didn't intentionally suggest that i was visiting the end uh, i was approaching the end but it's a, it's quite a valedictory novel all sorts of um, problems that the characters are facing in past books are either resolved or some kind of compromise is reached. There's a sort of looking forward to a very different life for all of them, and including Dalglish, who is getting married again, and so that his love affair, which has been a bit protracted, is now reaching for him a very satisfactory end. And I felt I'd done well with it. I thought it was a good detective story, and I'd much rather end with something that is good. I, I've always been very frightened of being tempted to go on too long and the quality falling. But I know that happened. It certainly happened to two of my predecessors. It certainly happened to Agatha Christie. It certainly happened to Mayo Marsh. Um, and I think it's a great pity. And the temptation is for people because there's such a demand for a new book. They feel they can go on doing it. And, and after time, probably one can't. And I think that has to be faced. There's no evidence so far that I can't, but um, I shall have to see. Uh, and it may be time to do something different, or um, you know, not to write another novel. But the novel is the natural form to me, not a short story, uh, not journalism, but the novel. Um, and um, it's a detective story that I'm most comfortable with. So uh, it's going to be quite a difficult, difficult decision. Tell me about your apprenticeship, because you said earlier that you, you knew from an early age you wanted to be a writer, and yet on the other hand you weren't published until you were in your early 40s. So tell me, about, tell, me about your, tell me about your sort of apprentice years and what, what, how you were developing as a writer before you emerged fully formed, as it were, with um, Cover Her Face in 1962. Well, there was no real apprenticeship at all. I just knew I was wanted to be a writer. I left school at 16. Um, my father hadn't, um, he worked as a middle grade in and revenue official. There wasn't money for university education. And uh, A, I don't think I was intellectual enough to get a kind of scholarship to a university. In any case, I was expected to earn my living when I was 16, and I have earned my living since I was 16. Um, and have been working from 16 to nearly 89 with just some years off when the children were young and I didn't go to any have any kind of training in writing I didn't go to any writers group but when it came to write my first book I wrote it I think one of the advocates did say it was sort of extraordinarily competent as if it was an established writer I wouldn't go so far to say that but um, it, it, it was accepted by favour in favour mm. as soon as it was written um, and as soon as it was produced for I don't know, I didn't practice I wrote um, a play for broadcasting it sounded Val Gilbert he didn't accept it but he wrote back and said it was very good and would I send him anything else I'd done but I hadn't done anything else and that's all really I don't think I had much time for sort of training myself or practicing because um, I needed to I needed to get a senior post to support the family properly and that meant going 
you know, full-time, working full-time, and then in the evenings I went to the City of London College and took evening classes in order to take exams and then I became, I got um, a diploma in administration and in hospital administration and that of course um, led me to a senior job and then when I was doing the senior job time was pretty occupied with the job and children in the holidays and visiting my husband in hospital. There wasn't an awful lot of time for anything but I can remember very distinctly that a moment came in which, you know, it suddenly dawned on me that, that what was really important to me was being a writer and going on like this, I never would be one. The time had to be made. I had to get on with it. And so I did begin with Cover Her Face, but I must have started that when I was in my mid-30s. What am I talking about? Yes. Indeed, I did, and um, finished it, you know, to submit it. It took a long time. A long time to do it. I don't mean I was constantly revising it, just a long time to find the energy and the time to do it. Who were the writers that you admired and who were the writers from whom you got a sense of what a detective story was when you were writing in the, in the late 50s, when you were beginning to, to put that together? Well, I think the, the influence, I, I can recognise it, really, the influences on my writing. As far as the detection is concerned, it was certainly the women of the Golden Age. It was Dorothy L. Sayers and Marjorie Allingham, and to a, a less extent, Niall Marsh. They were women who knew how to write. They could write novels and they could tell a story. Of course, they were living in a very different world, and looking back at them now, there's a kind of romanticism. I mean, obviously, Lord Peter is a figure of fantasy, a figure of wish fulfillment, and there's certainly a snobbishness. I don't get as het up about that as often the young do. For one thing, what seems to be snobbishness was often just the way in which educated people in those days behaved and expected others to behave. But nevertheless, uh, in those books, you know, the class division is uh, it, it, it's not so much emphasised, it's just completely taken for granted. That is how the world is, and that's how their world was. And it was with their own kind that they lived, and um, these writers wrote about their own kind, those were the people they understood. And I've sort of been accused, uh, I think, by a certain amount of jealous people, but actually my novels do go right across the social spectrum, which I think they should. Um, so that, um, for example, a private patient, it's mostly a middle-class milieu. It has someone who's rather more than middle-class because her family owns the manor house, and then it has the cooks and the gardener and the people of the village who are equally important, and um, the staff. So we go right across, and I think a book has to do that, if it's going to be realistic. It simply has to, and um, I've always felt some resentment to, to buy an accused of snobbishness by people who had the benefit of going to universities, uh, when I came from a very different class, both socially and from the point of view of money. Um, and so I'm not given to, I have a great, dislike of class distinction, really, and class prejudice, whether it comes from the top towards the bottom or whether it comes from the bottom towards the top. I, th I think it's pernicious and I think we should treat other human beings as fellow humans and uh, some are good and clever and kind and funny and some are unkind and snobbish and horrid and selfish and it's, that's how it is. I mean I read Agatha Christie but she was never a model. Um, 
I admire her because of the ingenuity, and I think one should admire the ingenuity. And also, as I've said, written many times, she provided relief and entertainment in peace and war for millions of people in all parts of the world. And that is an achievement that one should respect. Um, she is not a good novelist, but she had, um, the style was very workmanlike. The dialogue was good and carried the story forward. I think if we find ourselves benighted in some terrible hotel when a flight has failed somewhere in parts of the world and in the bedside cabinet there was the newest winner of a prestigious literary prize and an Agatha Christie, I think most people, if they're honest, would pick up the Agatha Christie to while away the boredom of a night in a strange hotel. And that's what she does, but I, I never used her as a model. But um, more important, I think, are the the writers who taught me a great deal, who are non-writers of detective fiction. Um, and chief among those, really, um, is Jane Austen. Um, and then Evelyn Waugh, who was a master of prose, taught me a great deal. And I just reread him and just, you know, just, just takes his pleasure in the paragraphs and the perfect sentences. Graham Greene, I think largely because of telling the story and also the other dimension, the sort of spiritual dimension, which I'm always rather interested in. Um, and those, those three really. Uh, You've talked about class and how society has changed in the, in the past decades. The other thing which has changed is how the police conduct their business and, and yes. the scientific dimension. How have you managed to keep up with that side of things? Well, I suppose there are all sorts of aspects to this question. First of all, there is the attitude of the police. And my policeman, of course, is, uh, as every hero of detective fiction must be, he is not corrupt and he behaves in a gentleman sort of way to his suspects. Um, and there certainly are many policemen who are like that. Um, I don't think we should stereotype policemen. And certainly I was very fortunate because when I took an exam, after my husband died, I took a public examination for the civil service and ended up in the home office where I was allocated to the police department. So I met senior policemen and my job was concerned with forensic science and with the police service. So this was a wonderful entree too, the sort of people that I met, the sort of policemen that I met. Then there's the aspect of course the job they do and especially the way in which it's organised. The change from my childhood has been absolutely astonishing and certainly from the so-called golden age where there were many more police forces. For example, um, Cambridge would have the Cambridge City Police and the Cambridgeshire Police. They're much smaller forces. The chief officers didn't come up through the ranks. They were nearly all brigadiers, colonels. This meant, of course, that um, they came from one class, but against that they were very experienced in um, commanding men and had great respect for their men and knew how to command men. So, you know, although they tended to be autocratic, I think, very often, um, most of them were, were very successful. Um, and they knew the chaps under them because they were few enough to know. And the officers knew them and the community knew them and they were drawn from the community. So there were advantages which, for example, you can't hope to get now in a London, a multicultural London. And I can remember being very young, my father saying to me, any sort of trouble, your parents are not here, you must find a policeman. 
and again that sort of my book I wonder how many parents in the inner city now would tell their children that now of course they've been combined into much bigger forces and they're much more scientific they're policing a very very different society that's basically the thing um, when I was young they were policing a unified society I, I didn't see a face other than a white face until we left Ludlow where I lived and went to Cambridge and I saw some of the um, some of the Indian princes who were there as undergraduates. Otherwise, I never saw anyone other who wasn't white. And it was a country that was basically a Christian country in name. I'm not sort of making any comments about the morality of it, but in name, and that was a very unified force too. And with um, huge respect, or so it seemed, for most of the bastions of the state, whether it was the monarchy, the two main universities, the city of London, and so forth, all that was fractured and disappeared and they have a much more complicated job and of course they they do it with great and enhanced resources certainly uh, the time i first began writing the forensic science service was very rudimentary um, and the development now dna and uh, many many techniques applied to crime detection have really revolutionized it mm. on the other hand of course that um, we are not um, we're no nearer solving the basic problem of crime, of lawlessness and social lawlessness, which on the whole is probably worse, pretty much worse than it was when I was a girl. Except of course I lived in Ludworth until we moved to Cambridge and you could in those days live in a small town or a village and, and really live in an astonishingly peaceful society, which is not now possible. So I think writers who have um, detectives or professionals have got to be okay with that, have got to keep up with it, especially with the scientific basis of their work. D do you remember how and when you became aware of, of crime? You, you, you write in your autobiography about there being much more in the press, more, more accounts of murders when you were younger, and I wondered where and when it was that you sort of began to think about crime as a, as a phenomenon and as, as something that presented moral questions and allowed you to tell particular kinds of stories. How, how did that come about? It certainly wasn't in childhood, which today it would be. I think it was through literature and through um, reports in the paper of the more notorious murders, which were reported in great detail, really. The, the trials and so forth. And you, the, the country was very interested in the more notorious murders. Uh, and they were there for a child who seems like a read, I read them. So crime to me tended to be notorious, terrible crime. And I got interested in some of the old crimes, the Victorian and Edwardian ones, contrast between their respectable lives and the uh, tumult of emotion underneath that was <coughs> causing them, you know, these relationships to erupt into murder. Um, but I wasn't ever uh, afraid of going out at night or being a sort of attacked or raped or that wasn't part of childhood at all it, it was just notorious murders and things like that that you came across in books or newspapers or heard the grown-ups talking about um, you said in your autobiography talking about your childhood that you existed on a plateau of apprehension with occasional peaks of acute anxiety and fear and you said that that may not have been good for your siblings but in a way it formed part of you as a, as a writer can you say a bit about yes, what you I meant i think it was fear um, outside i think it was fear of displeasure of my father fear of failing at school that kind of fear 
not exactly fear, but sort of um, anxiety that you haven't got the right dress for the uh, school party at the end of the term. Um, much more immediate fears to do with ordinary life. Mm. And certainly um, there was, um, uh, I think, an undercount of very considerable fear. Um, fear may be too strong a word. Anxiety, much more. Uh, my parents' marriage was not entirely happy. I don't mean they divorced, you didn't in those days. Or that it was always unhappy. I don't mean that, or that we were particularly cruelly treated, but it was, it didn't seem, childhood didn't seem to be particularly secure. And the the detective novel is a way of bringing structure to something which otherwise well, absolutely, seems absolutely. unstructured and disordered. Absolutely, yet it is the bringing of order out of disorder. It is immensely satisfying, and I think it's one of the reasons why women are very good at writing them, and why they give such comfort to people, especially in um, times of great anxiety, like the present, when there's a great flowering. There was in the Golden Age, before the, sec the fir First World War, um, sorry, the Second World War, um, before the First World War, too, of the, that period between the First and Second World War. Um, there was a great time of great anxiety. And of course now, today, um, it's amazing. I'm always reading um, new writers of detective fiction I've never heard of, with reviews that are really very complimentary about them. There's obviously a lot of talent, and obviously a lot of new talent, and the old ones are still doing as well as ever. I'm thinking, of course, of Ruth Rendell and um, Ian Rankin. And just the quality, I think, is really high, but they are incredibly popular. There's no doubt, I think, if people want to have a career in writing, if you can begin with a detective story and find an original hero and an original plot and write it really well and manage to combine the qualities of a good novel with an exciting mystery, it's, you stand a very good chance of having it accepted. And people know that, I think. We remain, and doubtless always will remain, both fascinated and appalled by the phenomenon of murder, don't we? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It is the one crime for which we can never make reparation. The taking away of something which we didn't give, and can never give. And I think it has an aura of, of horror and mystery and of appalled fascination. We are fascinated really particularly to know what it is that makes people pass over that invisible line which separates the murderer from the rest of us. And that is why, of course, it does tend to be pretty much um, a middle-class um, novel with a middle-class setting, because um, it is when someone who has really no excuse for this kind of violence, someone with enough money, someone who's been educated, actually commits murder as of course with some of the Edwardian and Victorian women. We feel this extraordinary extra interest. Why? How could they do it? And we are fascinated by it, both in real life and of course in, in fiction. And fiction maybe allows, allows that bringing of order because I think in, in The Private Patient, Kate Miskin refers to commonplace murders. And I suppose so many of the murders we see in real life and in the press are commonplace murders by which I mean, they're, 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 sol they're quickly solved, they're sordid and explicable, whereas fiction deals with ones which are not readily explicable. Oh, abso absolutely, yes. Um, of course, there are real-life murders, and I can think of cases which remain utterly fascinating, usually unsolved. People of, I'm thinking of, Ma well, Madeline Smith was solved, but it's a fascinating murder. And, and there are others which are extraordinarily fascinating. But on the whole, in this country, it's a domestic crime. 
80% of women who are murdered are murdered by husbands, lovers or boyfriends. Babies are the most vulnerable of all groups, which is not what people feel. They feel young men must be, but no, babies are, and frequently killed by stepfathers or even by mothers. It's a crime really often of jealousy. Um, of course, some, there are some particularly horrific ones. They're very rare and very, very difficult to prove because, or to, uh, to solve, because um, if they're crimes by psychopaths, um, there's no logic in them. And hunting down psychopaths um, is extremely difficult. Um, but it's quite true, the, the real-life murder, except in rare cases, which continue really to exert their fascination, is there such a, a place as James Land with its own particular moral character and field, do you think? Do you, you recognise such I a thing? There might well be. I think there could be, I think. I think there could. There is very much a, a moral background. There is the, the, the moral status is unambiguous, really. And of course, I, I think in, in detective fiction, very often is, but perhaps not as clearly. And of course we can get books which are not really detective. I'm thinking of Highsmith, in which you have an anti-hero, or for her, a hero, who is a psychopath, which to me is deeply unsatisfying because um, because he's a psychopath, so he's no motive for killing other than he feels like killing, which you know to me is, has neither logic nor, nor morality and is just boring. But she is, of course, um, very highly regarded and I think one um, article, one of the Sunday compliments, put her at the top crime writer. And of course we're thinking of crime, maybe that's different, but detective fiction is a sort of subgroup of the crime novel. And I think it has its own necessities, and, and one is that you do have um, really a, a mentally sa sane murderer, and whose actions may be cruel and wrong and misguided and occasionally stupid, but are, are sane actions. There's an implicit contract between the reader and the writer. Absolutely. There is a, there absolutely is an implicit contract, that's right, that this will be fair and that all the clues will be available to the reader. Because it was all set down by, I think, um, Father Knox, Arnold Knox. He drew up the rules in the Golden Age and people adhered to them. Um, and there they were, that uh, the murderer was to appear very quickly, within I think he sort of the third of the book, mustn't be delayed. Every clue available to the detective must be made available to the reader. There must be no twins, no portion, no poisons unknown to science. There should be no Chinaman. I'm not quite sure why there shouldn't be any Chinaman. Some say but there should be no Chinaman. These rules were laid down, and on the whole, they were pretty well adhered to. And when Agatha Christie, of course, wrote the murder of um, Ackroyd, wasn't it? Uh, um, in which the murderer was the actual uh, narrator of the story. It was uh, very, very clever, but um, she was accused of cheating in a very major way. People were pretty outraged and didn't expect that sort of thing from her. Um, the rules were more or less kept, but of course you can't write good novels to rules and gradually, I mean, they were modified and people didn't stick to them. But, but basically they stick to them too. That, I think the murderer should be sane, and that the clues should be available. And he also, he also said, and this is a real problem, that, um, that we shouldn't enter, I think, into a murderer's mind. The problem with um, writing the sort of book I do where we enter very much into people's minds and where the viewpoint shifts is that you, can you 
shift your viewpoint to the murderer's mind. And I think once the murderer has been planned and certainly executed, in a way you can't. I sometimes wonder whether that's not carried into too far. In other words, one could surely enter into the murderer's mind if he's having a kind of dream or asleep and he's half asleep and half awake. And then at that time he probably isn't thinking of his crime. But when he's fully awake, his crime and whether he's going to be discovered and how, and how he's going to act in relation to the police must be in the forefront of his mind. So I think you've got to be very careful about that. But, um, uh, certainly that was one of the rules. I can't remember the words in which it was framed. But, um, and it remains one of the problems of detective fiction. Let me ask you in conclusion, Phyllis, if you have plans for future novels in your head at the moment. It's just quite difficult. I mean, 89 in August, 90 next year. Um, very few people write their best novels at 90, I think. And I take a long time to write them. But I, I just very much love um, plotting detective fiction. It, it's a fascinating form of, of writing for me, absolutely fascinating. And the um, ambition to write a good novel, which has all the usual virtues of a good novel, which at the same time provides a credible and exciting plot. Um, it's something which I, I very much enjoy. And I find um, a great deal of modern writing, especially modern novels, to lean to self-indulgent. Um, so as I go older, I read much more non-fiction than I do fiction. And very few people, modern novelists who are good, seem to be able to write about life as it is in this country, especially the life of people at work. And I think that detective fiction often does that. Um, my characters have jobs to do, and we see them doing this work. Um, you know, it's not um, 90,000 words of introspection by people living sort of uh, too preoccupied with adultery in NW3, that sort of thing. It just doesn't move me. And of course, when you write detective fiction, you're getting away from that. You are doing what fiction has always done at its best, which is to tell a story. Um, and you can tell a story if you write detective fiction. So I, I just don't know really yet what will happen at the moment. It's a sort of in a bit of a limbo. Of course, also there's a slight complication of had heart failure, so I haven't a great deal of energy, and uh, the duration of my life is somewhat uncertain. Um, I've always had a great horror of being halfway through a book and some horrible person wanting to finish it. <laughs> so we shall have to see, won't we? <laughs>